Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. When it was released in 1987, The Monster Squad was deemed a failure by critics and was, according to the box office, a film no one cared about. But over the last three decades, word of mouth has turned this sleeping hit into a cultural phenomena. Wolfman's Got Nards explores the relationship a dedicated audience, including celebrities and filmmakers, has with The Monster Squad. This documentary takes an in-depth look into the film's conception, response, cult status, and revival. Through interviews with cast, crew, screenwriters, directors, academics, and original reviewers, as well as never-before-seen footage, it turns the lens on an audience of self-proclaimed misfits who kept the Monster Squad alive for more than 30 years. We're joined today by the director of Wolfman's Got Nards, and that would be Andre Gower. Andre, welcome to Film School Radio. Uh, thanks for having me. Thank you so much. I am so glad that I was shown uh, the opportunity to uh, to see this film. From it, I gleaned how much fun it was in to make the film. I mean, I'm sure it was not always an easy task, but not, nonetheless to make the film. And this sense of camaraderie that came from it. And then the embrace of this audience who were, refused to let it just fade away and it's just such a joyful watch in just watching this film to to uh to see how all of this plays out you're in the film so what about this whole phenomena of the monster squad how did you get into doing a documentary about it well really it, it only makes sense to go back a little prior to that exact moment of the idea for a documentary um going back to the spring of 2006 when we got contacted by the original Alamo Draft House in Austin, Texas. At that time, there was only one. <laughs> now there's 30 something across the country. Uh, you know, great place to, uh, the place to go see movies if, you're, if, if you like that experience. It's my favorite place. And I, and I love the, the organization and the people all over. But really we got invited to do a 35 millimeter kind of retro cast reunion screening at this little cinema that's above you know second story in like the warehouse district in downtown austin and that was put together by a guy named eric vespi who was a writer at a film site called ain't it cool news then now he's at rooster teeth and he's big he was a big film reviewer and um the alamo draft house put it together they found a print which uh, apparently is kind of hard but there was one 35 millimeter print still in existence that people knew they had in their inventory and they shipped it to Austin. They flew myself, Ashley Bank, who plays Phoebe, Ryan Lambert, who plays Rudy, and the director and co-writer Fred Decker in for a weekend. And we're like, you want to watch, you want to watch Monster Squad? Like, do, do, are people going to come? And, you know, we just didn't know what it was going to be. Lo and behold, fast forward to that weekend, it was gigantic. And that event became the seminal event, like the spark that ignited this monster squad resurgence that's been going on for, you know, 14 years now or something, you know, whatever it is, th 13 years. And that led to headlining conventions as a cast doing other screenings at other theaters and cinemas and, and, and retros, um, you know, art house cinemas, like, you know, you used to be a projectionist at, and, you know, I was flying all over the place doing this stuff with my castmates and solo. And it was really sort of, 
at these conventions and these appearances, meeting these fans that now had an opportunity to see what they've always known as their favorite movie of all time on the big screen with the cast or just me in attendance or meet them at a convention. And you start hearing these stories of how this movie connected with these people and how it impacted them as human beings. And I'm not sounding over the top there. I mean, this movie, for some reason, really had an impact on people. And some of it changed their lives or shaped their lives or molded right. their path of what they wanted to be. Right. And we thought that was very neat and very cool for, you know, a year, two, three, four. And we thought this was just going to fade away and not, not continue. And we were wrong. It's only gotten stronger. And you keep hearing these amazing stories of what this movie meant to these kids when they saw it, whether they saw it when they were nine or 14 or 20 in college, or, you know, they got referenced by their friend in the neighborhood and saw right. it on HBO, or they recorded it on a blink, you know, Maxell tape. And, uh, or they, they rented it so much from the local video store that the store finally got tired of them coming in. They just gave them the damn movie. <laughs> right. Um, you know, we, or the, the video story where, you know, all of a sudden the mom's credit card gets charged 6250 because that was the licensing fee, you know, back then or whatever. And if you didn't return it, you bought it. Right. And they're like, what is it? And like, I'm not getting rid of this movie. <laughs> and so, you know, that visa just gets hit. And I, I kept hearing these stories again and again and again. And they were all very similar, but they were all very individual and, you know, personal. Right. But they kept rolling in. And I was like, you know what? This is something different. I'm at a huge pop culture convention or a huge horror convention with my castmates and pals. And we see all these other great names and people are getting autographs and taking photos. But the people that come see, it's different. For some reason, it was different. And I didn't know why. And I thought looking into why this was so different would be interesting. Mm -hmm. And then I discovered that those stories are the story. And so, you know, this isn't a making of doc. It's not a where are they now documentary. It's not, and it's not really that, you know, to be honest, we have a lot of this nostalgic, uh, especially in genre and in sci-fi and in pop culture where they're, they're making, you know, good documentaries, but they're, they're straight fan service type things, right? Yeah. That's not what this documentary is either. This is an explanation and a love letter from this side of it to the side that kept this movie alive for 30 something years. And it really is turning the focus around on the fans that kept this movie alive, uh, you know, in their, in their minds in their guts and their hearts and in their cul-de-sacs, you know, for decades. And I hadn't seen anything that serviced those stories. And that's the angle we wanted to do. One of the cool things about, Wolfman's Got Nards is that you go back to to why the film was made in a sense, in the sense that these universal villains, what how do you like monsters? They're the classic uh, universal monsters, yeah. Monsters, right. So you've got Frankenstein, you've got Wolfman, you've got uh, Dracula. I'm leaving out the gills, the gill man. Yeah, yeah, gill we call him gill man, creature from the black lagoon. Well, that's and, right. And um, and the mummy. And the mummy. And the mummy. And so, and by the time that this film is made, by the time the Monster Squad is made, those particular characters have been severely degraded from the peak of their sort of cinematic power. They're sort of they've sort of been relegated to second, third tier props in films, right? 
But sure. then strangely, and I do remember this. I remember when I was a kid, I watched Abbott and Costello meet, you know, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and Abbott and Costello meet Dracula. Do I have that right? Yeah. 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 And, and, and scared I, think me. They did, I think they met the mummy too. <laughs> but, did they yeah. meet the mummy too? And yeah. I remember being scared by it. And I was very, I was very young when I saw them, but I remember how menacing they were in that film. And so when I'm watching your film, I'm thinking, oh, I remember this, but then take it from there because I, I love what you did, what, what uh, Fred did and what this, what you did with this idea of these monsters. So, well, yeah, it all, you know, the monster squad 87, you know, uh, story all comes out of a kid named Fred Decker growing up and watching television and, and old movies and, and going to his art house theater and watching, you know, black and white films and becoming a film buff and a, and a, and a TV buff. Fast forward, you know, a couple of years to when Fred and his buddy Shane are in college together, he, he starts, you know, breaking a story about you know, what would happen if the little rascals fought the classic universal monster. And, you know, a lot of people today that are under, I'd say, I don't know, 35 have no idea what I'm talking about when I say that. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm lucky enough because I'm old enough to grow up and I, you know, on Saturday morning, there was our gang and you're like, what is this ancient TV show about these kids? This is amazing. But it was so iconic and it had all these great characters and they got into, you know, it just scamps in the neighborhood and got into adventures. It was super over the top you know, cheese and fun, but it was so innovative for the time that they were doing that show. Yeah, yeah. And then something completely on the other side of that is these classic universal monsters that had these huge hits coming out of the depression era and world war two, and even into the fifties, especially with the Abbott and Costello, you know, meat series. Yeah. And Fred was like, and he says the same thing. He said, uh, and Shane, you know, agrees that, you know, in the Abbott, Abbott, Abbott and Costello movies, they're they're scarier than they were in the earlier iterations of their stories. Yeah. And and he's true. And he's and they're both right. And so they started crafting the story about these kids who are, you know, misfits and, and a group of kids that no one else will hang out with because they're into things that uh, the cool kids aren't. They're into comic books, they're into literature, they read history, they know monster lore. You know, they're monster and sci-fi buffs and they're experts in, you know, all of the weird stuff that uh, in that niche, in that genre. And, you know, they, they found each other and became a group of friends. And then we add, we add to the group as the movie goes on, of course. And uh, it's just, it's, it became this story that Fred and Shane wanted to tell that is jam-packed with, you know, a bunch of stuff. And in the original, you know, kind of drafts of the script were much deeper and, and, and darker. If they can get darker, our movie's pretty dark for a kid's movie. Yeah. And, you know, it ended up becoming, you know, kind of this 82 minute, really quick bang, bang, awesome movie about these misfit kids who have to fight, what ends up being the universal monsters as a group that all get kind of, you know, the all-star team of historical villains um, that have all carried a movie on their own, let alone, you know, team up and have their bits uh, because there's a hundred year time clock that's happening and it happens tonight at yeah. midnight. And, yeah. the, you know, the balance of evil and good is balanced and you destroy the amulet and uh, you know, evil can take over. And the only ones that can stop them is a group of kids. And I think that was, um, 
I think that's what resonated with the kids that watched it and loved it because it was a kid's adventure story that was real, uh, had some danger to it. It's kids yeah. in peril. Yeah. I didn't treat the kids as campy. There's no camp in this at all. There's some cheese, but it's not camp. And uh, it's it, everybody thought it was you know fun and authentic and had a lot of heart. And that's what resonated. But it all comes from that original thought of Fred Decker you know, coming up with this crazy story and what would that look like? And yeah, well, right. You, 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 were, you referred to uh, Shane Black. You, sh- you said Shane, but Shane Black, uh-huh. who went on to write the Lethal Weapon uh, scripts and became <laughs> one of the hottest screenwriters in, uh, in Hollywood. He is the collaborator with Fred Decker on this. And it wasn't Fred, and I, I don't think, and I know it wasn't Shane who said what the, what I thought really resonated with me in terms of why it's been so successful. And they said something along the lines of, and please jump in. Um, and that is mm-hmm. that you take these kids, you make them real, you make the, you flesh them out, you give them empathy, you give them a sense of belonging and you can do anything with these kids. And I don't remember exactly who it was that said that. I but think it, that was, I think that was Joe Lynch, the director, Joe Lynch, that mentioned exactly that. Yeah. And uh, he said, because once you get connected with these characters, like you'll follow them anywhere. Right. And, and you sounds like that, that, that rings true for you as well. It just. Well, I think that's something that, you know, when you're writing a script or a story or making a movie off of a script, that's a very important thing to do with whatever your characters are. And especially if they're kids, because up until that time, and even up until today, um, you know, kids stuff isn't really written by kids for kids because that's just kind of impossible. Right. right. Uh, I, you know, I think they should, you know, they should hire some kids as some consultants sometimes for kids shows when you think about it, because a lot of times, you know, we had a handful of kids adventure movies coming up through the eighties. They were all pretty similar and, you know, some were big, you know, productions and outlandish and had some great effects and some adventures. And then some were a little darker and a little more realistic, even though they were in a fictional setting. But usually the time they're written by 35, 45, 50-year-old dudes who are trying to remember what it was like to be a 12 and 13, 14-year-old and then try to be funny in today's context or whatever current day is. And that never works. Right. You know, I I, I can't go hang out with a bunch of 12-year-olds and make jokes that they're going to get, and I'm not going to get their jokes. It's just a generational thing. And I think we suffered from that for a while, even though we enjoyed all these kids' movies. Look, there was a lot of great, you know, kid-oriented, you know, movies in the 80s. And that was great because usually up until that time, if you were a kid in a movie, you were someone's offspring, and that was basically it. Like, you didn't really have your own adventure or your own own story or plot line. And, but Fred and Shane being not too much older than the the characters in the movie. They're only about 10 years older. You know, when they started breaking the story, they're still connected with that, that, that youthful zeal and kind of that thing, but mix it in with the classic, you know, kind of, uh, it's not just nostalgic, but, you know, a return to the classic kind of idea of monster films, adventures, good versus evil, things like that. And it just, it worked. And the main thing is, is because it had heart and authenticity. And that's what everybody connected with. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, we're speaking with Andre Gower. He's the director of the documentary film called Wolfman's Got Nards. And it is part of the Monster Squad uh, uh lexicon if you will in uh, in the uh, 
in this. Uh, if you've seen the Monster Squad, you'll know what we're talking about. But uh, you're also uh, one of the writers, and uh, you, yeah, and you were in the Monster Squad. So t- talk about your role and tell what did it mean to you when you were there, sort of living through this, putting aside the success, financial success of the film at the, after it came out. What was this like for you as an experience to be in this film? Well, look, leading up to the, you know, the initial casting, you know, process and then getting the movie and then prepping for the production and then actually shooting the movie, that was all way before, you know, it's going to be received well or not do well at the box office. So it's a completely separate experience. And it was absolutely incredible. I mean, this was a, a, a big budget studio movie with classic monsters a group of kids, there's adventure, there's chase scenes, there's special effects, there's practical effects. You know, we're right at that era in 87 where some VFX are starting to come and be pretty good, but the practical effects are getting really good. And, you know, right at this time, you know, the crew that made all of our practical monster makeups ended up being the best of all time. All right. And they are now these icons in the industry, but they were all 20 something nobodies working in a guy named Stan Winston's shop in 1986 and, you know, creating the, these classic monsters. And they, in, they, they made innovations and advancements of how to make, you know, the animatronics and the robotics and, you know, the foam latex and the one suits and the paint schemes like Steve Wang did with Gilman, you know, the, these all just became this turning point right. and how to make stuff like that. And that's what, that's another way this movie really changed the game in people's lives because it changed an industry on practical creature effects all at the same time when these guys were doing stuff like Terminator and the predator and aliens and monster squad. And all, it was all right there packed in that same time. And it, it just completely changed the game for me as a kid on the set of this movie, being the lead of the movie, I'm in almost you know, a majority of the scenes. And so that's a lot of work, you know, and I was on set working every day, you know, for three, three and a half months straight. And it's a job, you know, and it's, it's long hours. It's uh, even though you can only be there for so long as depending on how your age as a kid, right, actor. Right, right. but uh, you, you've got to go to school every day. You've got to know your lines. You've got to get ready for whatever scene you're doing. You, you've got to be, you know, that consummate professional kind of actor, even though you're a kid and want to have fun, you know, with your castmates, which, you know, you can at some point, but it's all business and it's, it's, yeah. it's a big budget. You can't mess around. Was it cool? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it was, it was fascinating to see all this stuff work. And, you know, I, I'd hang out after my time was over and watch, you know, some of the effects or the, the stunts and the, you know, you know, Wolfman blowing up in the air. I mean, that was obviously one take and I was standing right there by the camera watching it. And it was amazing. And that's, you know, some people's favorite thing in cinema of all time. And I was like, I was standing there when they blew him up in midair. It was amazing. Um, and, and you were wearing, because you know, my dad pushed him out the window. <laughs> <laughs> and you were, and you were wearing what has become an iconic piece of uh, clothing. Uh, by the way, I thought that was very cool that, uh, but, and, and it's, it will, what I get from uh, Wolfman's Got Nards is that Fred Decker, who was the director there was there's this kind of perilous journey that he's on in terms of making the film, whether he was even going to be around for the second week of the production. <laughs> we get into that a little bit, but also just and that's one of those things. This is one of those things about Hollywood uh, and filmmaking and these backstories are often more fantastical than the actual films themselves. Right. But it also appears from this film, and I'm sure it's, it's true, and that is that you really liked each other. You really got along with one another. You really bonded. Of course, you were around a lot of kids your own age and 
So that's another thing that comes across in this film is just how much through the years you have stayed connected to these people. And that's absolutely true. You know, I'll touch on that last, you know, that last part when, you know, a lot of people show up to do an ensemble thing or you're supposed to be buddies or kids or pals. Look, I was a kid actor for as long as I was a kid and, you know, worked constantly and you're always supposed to show up and like, oh, hi, Andre, meet Jason. Uh, he's playing Peter and he's your best friend. So meet each other. And then in 10 minutes, we're going in front of camera and you're supposed to be best friends for, since yeah. you were born. Right. Great. Come on, Steve. What's your name? Steve? <laughs> let's go. Come on. Let's go meet. And so, you know, you know, that's what acting is. But, you know, we had enough time with something like Monster Squad to, uh, you know, kind of get to know each other. I had only known one of the other kids prior. Uh, Robbie Kiger and I, who played Patrick, had known each other for basically our lives which is you know <laughs> what 13 years and um you know so probably met each other when we were five or six because we grew up in the industry together and uh i met ryan lambert about i don't know three weeks before we started shooting i'd never met him before but i knew of him and you know we kind of have a, a a range of ages too so everybody kind of fi finds their age role in real life and then yeah. their character role and it all kind of mixes Right. And, you know, Brent Chalem being, you know, young at the time and innocent and, um, you know, it, that just comes across, you know, and then we have the two little ones. We have Michael Faustino and Ashley Bank, who were like six and five years old at the time, you know, so this is an incredible experience for everybody. But you do, you kind of bond because you spend every day, all day long with your squad and you just, you know, you get to be comfortable with each other and understand each other and, and be able to work off each other um, as actors. So I Sometimes it doesn't work. You can see that sometimes with younger actors and sometimes, you know, it, it's tough. That's why, um, who was it? Fields, WC Fields said never work with kids or animals. <laughs> and um, we, we had both and, and monsters. So, uh, you know, Fred, Fred was like, what are you doing? What am I thinking? <laughs> um, but, but I think it worked and it came across with that, you know, that camaraderie be, be, between the members. And, you know, it's kind of sustained, you know, through the years yeah, yeah. only because of, the internet and, you know, um, being able to find each other and call each other up on the phone. And look, I'll tell you that that event back to, you know, 06 at the Alamo draft house, when they flew Ryan and Ashley and I and Fred in, you know, that led to a lot of cool stuff. You know, we got to see each other constantly for the next 12 years. I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Andre Gower. He's the director and writer of the new documentary film called Wolfman's Got Nards. And how can people check this out? Well, on, um, our release day is uh, October 27th, uh, you know, on wide VOD. You can actually pre-order it on the 27th. It goes live. You can pre-order it on iTunes now. You can pre-order actually the physical Blu-ray or DVD off Amazon. Just look up Wolfman's Got Nards. There's not too many other products that have that name. Uh, and then if you aren't an iTunes fan or not an iTunes fan and don't want to order a Blu-ray, whatever your local cable provider is or Dish Network or, you know, look up on your, however you get your VOD services if you order stuff video on demand and search for Wolfman's Got Nards. <laughs> and you can either rent it or digitally download it and own it. And that would be fantastic if you did because uh, we get to share it with you. It's so funny. You can't say that title without smiling. I just, I, I can't, I can't say the title of this film. Well, man's got nards without, yeah, without wanting to laugh. Yeah. Well, that was one of the conversations of, you know, what do, you know, when I decided to start the, the, the experiment or the journey to develop a documentary and what would it be? It was obviously the title from day one. 
Now we sat down and wrote like four or five alternate titles. None of them worked as well for obvious reasons. And it's, you know, it's also a nice little shout out because Wolfman's Got Nards is um, Horace's uh, line, uh, otherwise known as Fat Kid. And um, everybody loves Horace. They're their favorite character. And that's his line. You know, when he actually kicks Wolfman in the Nards and then proclaims in the affirmative that Wolfman's got Nards and then we run, uh, that gets a howl and a scream. That, that's the biggest line in the movie. Um, he awesome. actually has both. He actually has both of the biggest yes. hoorahs when everybody watches that movie. When, right. when he says, Wolfman's got Nards, everybody's waiting for that. And then when he pumps that shotgun and says, my name is Horace, that is the end all be all for fans. Well, two different kind of emotional reactions, right? Wolfman's got Nards is is more of a, yeah, you know, but I think with the other, the other classic line, uh, then it's more of an emotional release, I think, in watching from right isn't it? it's more of a it's, it's certainly yes, that, that the that's a that's a great you know perspective on it yeah the wolf when he kicks wolf it's scary we have we have a there's a monster in front of us and i'm standing and i tell him what to do apparently yes. sean the leader doesn't have the nards to kick a monster in the nards i'm telling my cohort to do it yeah uh and he does and he hauls off and whacks him and stands there mouth agape and goes whoa because it's sort of a conversation. It's it's a payoff to a setup about Wolf Wolfman earlier. You know, like right. does he wear pants? Why does he wear pants? You know, <laughs> you know stuff like that. And um, you know, it's like wow. You know, and it, it's a, it's it's naive and it's it's wonderment and fear. It's like whoa, Wolfman's got no. And then we run. Now when Horace cocks his shotgun after he kills Gilman and turns around and you know, does his statuesque, you know, kind of badassery towards the bullies in the movie. That's the end of his arc, of his arc, of his character arc. He has yeah. come, he has come more, not even full circle. He's made 180 degrees from being the kid that gets picked on to being the badass. And as my buddy Seth Green says in the movie, the only one with any balls out of anybody. And he, you know, he comes out of his shell and he literally takes control, prize a shotgun out of a dead sheriff's hand and then kills a monster that's about to you know, slice them in half. That's a pretty badass, uh, you know, character arc. And I think that's one of the reasons that we're talking about the film today is because of that connection, that arc of his story. And when you showed up at the, in the 2006 at the Alamo theater, did you have a, any idea that it was as popular and it was resonating? How, how surprised were you? The, the short answer is no, we didn't have an idea. I, I knew people had knew the movie. I knew people had liked the movie uh, because, you know, I'd grown up, people had mentioned it. They were like, oh, I loved that movie. I was like, oh, I'm glad you saw it. And, uh, you know, go through the college years, you run into people that know it and loved it. But you're like, oh, it's kind of a random smattering. Had no idea that it was that strong with that many people. Not only in Austin, that was just people in Austin, Texas. And a couple of people drove from different states. But then to it, it, no idea, and that literally blew the lid off everything, and 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 kick started that uh, you know firestorm of activity for the next uh, up until today, and it, it's just it's mind blowing. It it really is. It's fascinating. Uh, it's it's certainly humbling, and you you, you just got to appreciate being a part of something that's very unique like that. And you know, I I don't I know a lot of fans of a lot of movies. And I'm a fan of a ton of movies. I'm a big movie nerd. You know, um, I, I love a ton of movies that people have never seen also or don't like, and I love. Uh, so I understand that kind of outcast view on some movies, but the these kids, I call them kids now, because even though we're all <laughs> almost, you know, 50 as the fans, 
they they come together. They can they can meet in a room. Someone can see another person wearing a Monster Squad shirt or an iteration of the Stephen King rules shirt, and they connect and they become friends and they've never known each other. Or they go to a screening or a convention and they meet and they become friends on social media. They'll draw. I mean, it's it's insane. And the connection that this movie can bring to other human beings that aren't connected, that's a second kind of iteration of the, con- it's another connection, not just when they found it originally, but now people are connecting over this movie. It's it's incredible. And it's not something that you could ever written or expected or, you know, banked on or, you know, right. made a prop bet on back in 87. Well, I wish I had, right? But, uh, you know, it's, it, it's just a really unique situation. And these fans... Uh, you know, are literally the best. You know, I don't just say that to service the fans. I, do, I don't know any better fans of other movies. Look, I'm a Star Trek fan. I'm a Star Wars fan. We, we love that. That's a whole other world, right? This is different. I don't know why. And that's why I made the documentary. I wanted people to experience that question uh, a little bit and, and have another reason to connect with other people uh, right. over whatever it is, but maybe through this, through this movie called The Monster Squad. Well, and I think the difference between, as you were describing Star Trek, Star Wars, this film did not have a $100 million ad campaign behind it. You had to find this film. And and it, it is one of the beautiful things about cinema is that when you find something that you connect with on that level, when you feel that that kinship with the characters, the story, the lessons learned, the ideals in it, those are things that are just, they stick to you like like nothing else. I mean, they're just, and, and then when you run into a fellow traveler, when you, when you have identified someone in your tribe, it is a real, it's a jolt. It's a, it's a, and it, and then two become four, four become eight. And, you know, then it just kind of expands. And that sounds like what has happened here. I I was actually, I actually worked in a video store many years ago up in uh, Mammoth, up in Mammoth Lakes. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I just remember people coming in for certain films and how, you know, giddy they were to be able to watch it back in the day when VHS was still pretty new. So uh, it was a fascinating time. Could you make that movie today? Could you make Monster Squad? Would you feel comfortable with that, the character development, the arc, the kind of characters that are in this film? Would it, would you even, if you were the head of a studio, would you even think about trying to make Monster Squad today? Uh, they've tried and they can't make it work. No, you can't recreate it. You can remake it, but you can't recreate what's there because you are not allowed to do on screen. Kids are not allowed to do on screen what we did on screen in 1987. Um, You know, the language, the, you know, the language, the, um, what's now, you know, it's politically incorrect language, not just the, the bad language. The situations, the kids yeah. in peril, yeah. um, you know, Rudy smokes and, um, you know, we steal guns and, you know, we, we steal weapons and, you know, we're blowing stuff up and Dracula, you know, thinks he actually kills a group of six teens and, and toddlers or, you know, you know, young kids in a treehouse with a stick of dynamite. Uh, it's, it's pretty, um, okay. it's pretty dark and it's pretty dangerous. It's just situationally, you couldn't make, you couldn't make the same movie. You could make a movie similar and it would be totally different, but then don't remake the monster squad, just make a different story. Uh, you know, that kind of has, you know, same tones or same adventure type thing, but just make it today. A sequel is a totally different story because yeah. you're tied to the other one. And that's always a good idea, you know, but you got to do it the right way and the right people have to be doing it. But no, you can't make that same movie today. Yeah. No way. It's funny. Uh, maybe, and I'm, maybe I'm stretching this uh, too far, but 
it's kind of an anti-Avengers film in the sense that the 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 monsters are of a squad, right? A kind of an Avengers group, and then you have the kids who are who are kind of the anti-Avengers. I, I mean, maybe that doesn't work. Maybe that's not even a good question. But no, I see what you're saying. It's what it is. It's which which is the squad? You know, which is the the, okay. the the what are we celebrating? What group coming together are we supposed to celebrate? The you know classic monsters, or is that just the threat? You know, is that and you know this group of monsters coming together for the first time uh, it, it, with that many of them? Yeah. Um, you know, and Dracula being the lead, you know, because he can control animals and other stuff. You know, like if you go back into like the literature of vampires right. and Draculas and stuff like that, which our original story did, there but all go. that got cut out. Uh, you know, it showed the knowledge of these kids, which was I thought my which was my favorite part of the entire original story is how educated and knowledgeable these kids are, not just of oh, you know, the you know, the cartoon, the mummy and you know, sixty right. you know, whatever they didn't they're going back to the literature and the history and and what mummies can do and what Dracula can do and all this stuff. And then it ends up happening. And they're the only ones that can handle it because the adults, it was that classic trope of the adults are not listening to the kids. Yeah. And we kind of lose that too, because our movie's so short. And once it starts, it just goes. <laughs> what is it like 80 minutes? You know, but it's, it, it's one of the, yeah, it's like 80 to 81, 82 minutes, yeah. which is uh, now everybody's cherry spot. Like everybody's looking for that under 90 minute future. <laughs> Uh, Because we made so many like thousand minute movies lately. Um, You know, if they're good, they're good. But boy, you need a you need a pee break every once in a while. Right. (laughs) But excuse me. I think that, you know, them coming together. Is it a good thing or is it a thread? Is it really sort of another social commentary? Because that's what the original monster movies were. They were all social commentaries of what we as a nation or as a culture we're going through, coming out of the Depression, coming out of the uh, Second World War, going into the Atomic Age. Um, you know, the, these were all physical and um, visual representations of these internal fears. Right. Some based on literature, some based off, you know, studio screenwriters. Um, and is that what we were thinking about in 85, 86, 87, when the story is being written? Or did that resonate to, you know, viewers at the time, you know, some people have talked about that as well. You know, there's a lot of stuff to be scared about in the 80s. There's a lot of stuff to celebrate in the 80s, but there's a lot of stuff to be scared about in the 80s. That's right. Uh, you know, we all kind of grew up at, at, at any minute, we're all gone, you know, in an instant. You know, it's like, well, if you see a flash, say goodbye, you know, because yeah. yeah. duck under your desk in fifth grade, because that'll help. Right. You know, it's like that if it's close, that's not going to help. <laughs> no, it's and, not. Um, and I don't think a lot of, you know, generation, you know, the younger generations, they don't didn't get the Cold War age or, you know, even I don't understand the beginning of the atomic age because I wasn't alive then. But I've seen enough and read about so I understand what it must have been like. And you also excuse me, I'm sorry, but you also see a lot of the the films of that era. Godzilla in the even Japanese horror, they were that was a reaction to the nuclear age. For, Absolutely. There was there's a lot of films of that time. They the earth stood still. A lot mm. of those sci-fi films of that era were trying to we were grappling with these questions of whether or not we're in a survivable world uh, as as we know it. And uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, and no, you're absolutely right. And you know, they are social commentaries and yeah. cautionary tales and blatant warnings to don't do this <laughs> because right. you're 
<laughs> I don't know what the point would be if, you know, if you're that dumb as human beings to do this because yeah. you think it's going to get you, it doesn't, it ends all things. Right. And, you know, and we grew up in that, but art always reflects, you know, kind of those times, right? Yeah. You can go back to Greek literature and it's, it's talking about the philosophy and the conquests and, you know, the wars and the the stories and the mythology. And, you know, that's just kind of what movies are the, sa the same way. It's a commentary on human experiences, right? Yeah. And, but I think that was a very fascinating time. We didn't know we were at the end of the Cold War, which is cool. You know, right. so, you know, that's some cool retrospective to look right. back and yeah. kind of go there. You know, it's just fascinating. And if you're a Cold War kind of dork like I am, uh, you know, and you go back when you're older and you read about something, I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. Scary as hell, but fascinating. Yeah. And then there, but right now we have new scary stuff that, you know, that, that keeps you up at night. But I think horror movies are that release and the genre movies are. I wasn't really, like you said, I wasn't really a, I wasn't a horror buff when I was a kid. I was really into sci-fi yeah. and adventure movies and fantasy. I love, I loved imagination uh, and horror is just all imagination. But I, I honestly, when I was really young, I was, a, I was a little frightened of most like big kid horror movies yeah. as we all should have been. Uh, but I saw them all. They were great. We got into the 80s, and I think we saw a reflection of, I, th I think the scariest monster in the modern era is Freddy Krueger because he's not real. He's in your mind. And you're the only reason he can come out. And that is terrifying. That's, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it's like, what does that mean? And who is the jerk that came up with this? You know, it's like, this guy, I want to, you know, yeah. uh, I want to, you know, tie that guy up and put him in a, in a barrel because he scared the shit out of me as a kid. Um, just with the, not the movies, they're cool and scary and a great character. And Robert Ewing was, you know, iconic. But the fact that this character only, like, so you can't sleep, you can't dream. You take my one safe space away from me. Like I'm having right. dreams of like playing basketball or like, you know, snow skiing on a mountain. And no, it's Freddy. Like you can't dream because that's when he comes out, he's going to get you. So yeah. I think that's the other manifestation of the new monsters that, you know, the classic monsters did in the 30s, 40s and 50s. And I also think that uh, one of the, the advances in filmmaking have also contributed to the realism and therefore the level of fright that is they instill in you. We've gotten pretty dark in terms of like horror films. I mean, it's if you can think it up. They can recreate it in a in a in a very feasible way to scare the shit out of you. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think I think uh, horror horror is a thing. Horror is a category. Right. That has dozens of subcategories. Obviously. Yeah. You can have you know total gory kind of you know monster eats people and zombie movies eating intestines and I mean yeah. the zombie movies are a whole other social commentary on our current yeah. kind of yeah. human existence. Right. And you know it's always some government issue that creates zombies. It's a, it's, it's a virus or it's a disease or it's a plague that, you know, we created. Um, wow. Hey, 2020. Um, and, you know, and then you have the, the, the slasher movie, which is, you know, as goes all the way back to, you know, the fifties and, and, and 70 summer camp, you know, awesomeness where, you know, there's a yeah. killer in the woods and, you know, don't do bad stuff as a teenager in the woods. Like you're going to get killed. Yeah. Um, I think that was a little kind of tropey, you know, uh, anecdote there and but all these subgenres and horror everybody likes one or two or five or all of them and when you get into the psychological stuff that's getting really well done now with yeah. movies like um you know like take like um 
you know, some of the Blumhouse movies are psychological. You're trapped in your own house. Right. Like, again, you're stealing your own, you're stealing your safe space. You're stealing your, your haven of where like the outside world isn't in, but now the outside world is in and you can't see it. That's terrifying. So yeah. we've gone into that realm of now we're invading not only your mind, but your, your physical space and you're, you're not safe anywhere. And I think that's kind of a commentary on, you know, the, the larger world because the world is so connected now. Exactly. And everybody like I, you and I are, are zooming right now when we're in two different states, even though it's not far, but it doesn't matter if you were in Thailand right now, it'd be the same thing, yeah. which is fascinating. But what that means is everything can come into, everything can come on you and in you and to you and around you right. and affect you and dismantle you because there's no, there's, there's no, no place, firewalls for that. There's like no there's no place, place to go. go. There's no place. It's always fine. It's always finding you. Right. And, and, and I think that's what those movies are actually a commentary of nowadays. So it's just, you know, horror just always has a social commentary, uh, whether it's about society our culture, um, government, world affairs, you know, whatever you can find something that is being influenced there. The film again is called Wolfman's Got Nards. And as you said, it'll be opening on our platforms like iTunes and others uh, starting on October 27th, but it's available now for pre-order, right? As of. That's correct. You can order it. You can pre-order on iTunes. You can actually pre-order the physical Blu-ray or DVD on Amazon. And then after the 27th, it goes wide release on VOD. uh, And that's all made possible by, you know, um, our great distributor uh, Gravitas Ventures, uh, which, you know, myself and my company, Fitter Pipe Entertainment and Pilgrim Media Group co-produced Wolfman's got nards and you know, we're just, it's been a little, it took a little while left. We had a great festival run, but now we're getting out to the world and the fans can celebrate it. And the official website is the squad doc.com. If people want to check into it, the squad doc.com to find out more. Congratulations on this. It really is an entertaining and formative and engaging film. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I'm, I'm, saying to anyone who's listening to the sound of our voices that Wolfman's got nards has got soul too. Thank you so much, Andre Gower, for being here today. Thanks, Mike, for saying that. And um, yeah, you know, follow at the squad doc or follow me on Twitter and Instagram and ask us questions, send in your squad stories, send your photos. Yeah, there you go. Uh, We we love doing that and uh, support Mike and his show. And thank you, uh, you know, and, and, and continue to support the guests he has, you know, later on, because I want to come back. Thank you, Andre. Thank you so much. We'll see you again soon. Thanks, Mike. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Thank you.